Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyer Labs. Today we are lucky enough to have David Fogel with us. And David is the president of Natural Selection. And what they do is uh, uh, they're involved with predictive analytics and forecasting in a range of industries from medicine, industry, different industries, and uh, defense. So David is a fellow of the IEEE, and he's author of six books and over 200 publications around evolutionary computing and neural networks. And uh, David also developed Blondie 24 in, back in 1999, which is a, a machine that evolved into a, being an expert to chess players. So we'll have to hear a little bit more about that, of course. So I invited David on the show because he just has a really deep experience with creating algorithms to help solve problems. Just And I'm just curious to hear what David is uh, doing now and um, hear more about his past. So, uh, David, thanks for joining us today. It's, it's my pleasure. I, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Great, great. And uh, so first off, I mean, you have quite a deep background, but do you mind kind of just giving us an overview on your background and we can dive into a few details on it as well? Yeah, sure. Well, I, anytime I tell my story, I have to start with my father. So my dad was Larry Fogel, and in 1960, he was on loan from Bear here in San Diego to the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and he was tasked with making a report for the U.S. Congress on what they should invest in basic research. One of the things he looked at, among many, was uh, artificial intelligence research. Now, at that time, AI research was focused mainly on heuristic systems, which later became expert systems, or on trying to build uh, brain models. Of course, back in 1960, we didn't know very much about how the brain worked. And, of course, much of it is still a mystery. But <laughs> back then, it was, re- it was really a mystery, so that wasn't a very... Uh, promisingly fruitful where to go. And his insight was a little different. Instead of looking at people, either asking them for rules about what they do or trying to emulate them by thinking about their brains, why not view people as just one product of an evolutionary process that's been going on for three and a half billion years or so and model that process on a computer because it comes up with ingenious solutions to problems all the time, life and death problems all the time. And so his idea was let's model that. So that was his evolutionary programming idea and he won a contract from the Navy to research it, uh, Condor said to him, look, you know, that's very nice, but that's not what we do here. So if you want to do that, you can take this contract and form your own company, or you can uh, get back to work. <laughs> so he said, well, I'm forming, my, I'm forming my own company. I'll see you later. So two guys left Condor with him, and he, he had his own company called Decision Science Incorporated from about 1965 through about 1981 or two when it was bought out by a defense contractor. And he was advancing all this evolutionary programming research and applications through industry as opposed to through academia. Uh, he finished his PhD in 1964 at UCLA, so he had he had the ability to do that, but that's not what he wanted to do. He was definitely more of a practicing engineer than an academic engineer. So I came along and started working with him as I was finishing my bachelor's degree in statistics at UC Santa Barbara, and I would work with him one day a week at the defense contractor, and then after I graduated, it became full-time. And I've been working in full-time in evolutionary algorithms and neural nets and everything since then. My dad passed away in 07, but when I finished my PhD in 1992 from UCSD in engineering, uh, we decided to start our own company called Natural Selection Incorporated. And it's uh, still around today, as you mentioned, I'm the president. My brother, Gary, is the CEO. His his PhD is in biology, so we like to joke that 
he's learned a lot of engineering and I've learned a lot of biology over the <laughs> years. But we have had to, we've had the opportunity to apply these sorts of computational intelligence methods to lots of different real-world problems and also some things that we might just call fun and games, too, over 20-plus years of, of doing this with the company and now 32 years of my doing it in general. Wow. And do you think growing up here, uh, because of your father's background and his experience, like, did he expose you to different ideas or things growing up that maybe other kids were not exposed to? Yes, of course. So he... he uh, he was a very imaginative person, as one might imagine him to be, if you can come up with simulating evolution on computers in 1960. Yeah. But he had other things, like in 1958, I believe, he had the first patent on active noise-canceling headsets, which did wow. nothing for him financially because it was way too early. I mean, <laughs> the, the patent expired in the 1970s, and then Bose made a lot of money on it. But anyway, back to your question. So, yes, he would he would do things like we'd be driving in the car, and I would say, tell me something I don't know about. And he would tell me something I don't know about, whatever it was. <laughs> uh, he would ask me to imagine imagine engineering things that were pretty much impossible as I was a teenager. Let's make a submarine that can fly. Well, why would you want to do that? I don't know, but let's think about it. <laughs> and so we, you know, we'd think about it for a half an hour over dinner. We might not get anywhere, but we think about it. So yeah, he, he definitely imparted a, a spirit of investigation, curiosity, trying things. They may not always work, but uh, you want to keep trying. And, and uh, I was very fortunate to have him as a dad. Huh. Well, that sounds wonderful. And before we get too far, could you, can you just describe... Um, I mean, it's, it's a, I know it's a broad uh, field, but evolutionary computing and just so everyone sure. can get a feel for sure. it. Sure. Well, the, the idea, yeah, the idea of evolutionary algorithms or evolutionary computing is that in, in typical optimization, at least up until maybe 1990 or 2000, I guess maybe even today to some degree, the idea is you have a, a solution and you're trying to make it better. And so you have one solution to a problem. Maybe it's Something about how to drive around town efficiently, like UPS might have to do, or FedEx, how do you fly airplanes efficiently, or whatever the problem is. And you have one solution to it, and then you try to improve that solution. And typically, there'd be different ways of making changes to that solution that you could come up with. One might be, let's make a random change. One might be, let's make a change that's based upon some mathematical formula. But still, there's just one solution. So the idea of evolution is that Nature doesn't work on one solution. It works on a population of solutions, regardless of the size of the population. It might be a herd of elephants, or it might be a population like a big beehive, or it might be something even with more uh, members like bacteria, let's say, in a petri dish. But whatever it is, there's a population of things, and they're all looking for a solution that might be the right answer to their problem. Typically, the problem is, how do I stay alive? How do I reproduce? How do I eat somebody else? Whatever it might be, right? It's a combination of those things. So by modeling a collection of ideas instead of one idea, and then having those ideas search for different, better solutions, we can employ a random variation and selection process on a computer and have it find solutions to things that we might not have been able to think of ourselves, or where we might not have been able to discover them if we were just using a single point trying to find a solution. Hmm. And, and can you give an example of a, how you would model, like, a, like maybe give an example of a, a certain project you worked on, like, you know, what, 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 how would you model kind of multiple ideas? Sure. Well, it depends, of course, on the problem because we try to take insight from the problem and then put it in a form that the computer can use to do that optimization. So just as an example, let's say we had a classic uh, problem called a traveling salesman problem. 
that problem is where you're the salesman or saleswoman, so the salesperson, and you have to start at home, and you have a bunch of clients that you have to go visit, maybe a hundred of them, and you want to get to all of them in the shortest distance, and then return home, right? Or return home in the shortest distance. So. What we would do in that case might be to represent the solution as a list of the clients, the cities, let's say, the locations that you're going to go visit. And then we might alter that by inverting a list or randomly putting one out and putting it back in another Mm -hmm. place. So those are kind of things that are discrete optimization problems. They don't have a continuous form. They have things that are discrete elements to them. And so that's one example. But another one, you mentioned my my Blondie 24 work, which was uh, checkers, then Blondie 25 was chess. In that case, we're evolving a neural network. So a neural network is a bunch of functions that look like supposed to look like how brain neurons work a little bit, and we connect them up with variable weights. And so in that case, we're not trying to find the order of them so much. We're just trying to find out what is the right connection strength between those weights so that when we present it with a checkerboard or a chess position image, it's going to know I like that image or I don't, and it can use that in order to figure out which moves it should make in order to find more boards that it likes as opposed to ones it doesn't. So in that case, we're taking like real numbers on a computer and we're varying them maybe with a normal distribution, a bell curve, Gaussian distribution kind of thing. So it's a different kind of form because we're operating on a different structure for that particular problem. But again, I, I try to come at each problem and think what is the representation that I'm going to use that's intuitive to me for that problem rather than have one representation that I'm trying to fit on the rest of the world. Mm, interesting. And and you kind of already answered my next question a little bit, but uh, you know, what's the? how do you decide whether to use a evolutionary or a algorithm or a neural network? On a particular product. Well, it, it, sure. It's not necessarily an either or. As I mentioned, sometimes you can yeah. do them together with, with, you know, hybridizing can be a good approach. But the first thing I'm going to try and think about if I'm trying to decide on an evolutionary algorithm is do you need it? Because if it's a simple enough problem where some sort of conjugate gradient or other calculus-based method is going to give you the right answer, or if there's a statistical package out for predictive modeling that's linear and you know your problem is linear, then it's not the kind of thing that you need an evolutionary algorithm for, and you're you're just wasting computational power to do it. So it has to be something that's a complex enough problem where there's probably multiple local optima on your response surface that you're looking at. And I can go into more detail about what that all means if that's important. But if if uh, listeners are already familiar with a landscape and an energy surface, uh, an error surface, then typically there's multiple right answers. Just not all of them are good enough, uh, or maybe not good at all. And so that's the kind of situation where you might look for an evolutionary algorithm. If you have a neural net, then that's a typical case where you're going to find those sorts of energy response surfaces because you have typically many nodes in different layers. And if it's deep learning, then it's lots of layers. And so by the time you try to train something that has 5,000, 50,000, 5 million, I don't know, weights, mm-hmm. you have a very complex landscape. And that's the kind of thing where a conjugate gradient method may get trapped in a local optimum that may not be good enough for you or an evolutionary method or some other random search method might be much better. Hmm, interesting. Okay. That makes sense. I've always, uh, yeah, I, I've always wondered how, what was the, the difference. Cause I mean, both those are pretty, I don't know if popular is the right word, but definitely people are very interested in both those these days. And it makes sense. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, they, they certainly can go hand in glove or you can choose one or the other, depending upon what the application is. But I try to think about what structure am I representing? And then do I need to do something that's a evolutionary algorithm as opposed to 
some of the conjugate gradient. Gotcha. Okay. And so you mentioned Blinding 24 and I did too in the intro. And so how did you get involved with, uh, games and, uh, programming games? Well, okay. So I, I've been, I've been a game person since I was a little kid. So (laughs) that part's easy, you know, I, 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 all the way to learning how to count cards in blackjack when I was 14, but, uh, I couldn't, couldn't do anything with it back then except <laughs> to practice, I guess. But I've always been uh, involved in games. And, you know, the funny thing is when you look at the real world as an engineer, a lot of it looks like a big game. Whether you're trying to figure out how to optimize uh, ticket prices at an event, you have someone who wants to maximize profits, you have a customer who wants to minimize expense, they all want to sell the opportunity, so they both want to go, right? They want you to go and you want to go, but we have to find the right price. That's kind of a game, too. So... Games aren't always like checkers or chess. They could be even a traveling salesman problem if you if you frame it correctly. And a lot of things that I've worked on, either in financial computing, predicting stock markets, or in defense and homeland security, involve two players, maybe more than two players, where they're really kind of playing a game. So I was happen for Blondie Twenty Four. I happened to be working on the island of Maui in Hawaii on breast cancer research using evolutionary neural networks to help a mammographer look at a mammogram and figure out whether there was cancer present. And at the same time in 1997, May of 1997, it happened to be the Deep Blue beat Kerry Kasparov. So that was my inspiration for saying, you know, I, I knew a lot about what went on in Deep Blue. There was a lot of human engineering for the machine. could look at 200 million positions per second. Gary Kasparov can only look at a handful of positions per second. Gary would tell you that the right, they're the right handful instead of the wrong 200 million. And that's probably true. But, you know, the that was one thing. The other thing is there's a lot of human knowledge that went into Deep Blue. Things from previous Grandmaster games, endgame databases, how do we score the positions that are in there. That's all algorithmic, but not machine learned. Uh, they did try a little machine learning, as I understand, but it, it didn't really help them, so they set it aside. And what I wanted to do was see, could we make a program that would learn how to play chess just by showing it the pieces and here's how they move and have it learn as much as it could on its own without giving it all that information. Because ultimately, I think one of the objectives for artificial intelligence research should be what can we get to learn that we wouldn't know on our own and how do we solve problems that we don't already know how to solve. If we already know how to solve a problem, it's great, but you know we don't know how to solve every problem. So what can we do with machines that would help us solve those problems? And... Yeah, I thought it was a good idea. I called up a graduate student, a friend of mine, Kumar Chilatilla, and he thought it was a good idea, too. He was happy to work with me on it, but we very quickly realized, you know, we had no funding, and we had one one Pentium 450 megahertz machine running Windows NT, <laughs> and so we said, well, you know, IBM <laughs> just spent like, how much money? I don't know how much they spent on Deep Blue, yeah, exactly. but it was a lot, okay, and the whole team. It was just us, so we said, let's do checkers first. So we did start working on checkers, and, and actually, you know, we were quite successful with it. We, Or maybe I should say the computer was quite successful, <laughs> and in, in the end, we, we ended up evolving neural networks to look at the pieces you have on the board. Where are they? Uh, how can they move? We didn't make it learn the physics of checkers. We gave it that. Uh, and also the piece differential, how many more pieces you have than the opponent. And the rest of it, it had to evaluate, uh, it had to learn how to evaluate that checkerboard on its own by evolving a neural net. And that neural net had 5,000 or so weights in it. Uh, it looked at the board in various ways and then computed whatever functions it wanted to compute and said, I like this board or I don't like that board. But, you know, in the beginning, most of those, well, all of the moves were, were random in the beginning, so they all were terrible. It's just that some of the 
population of terrible players who are worse than others. So we kill the ones that are the worst, and we make random mutations of the better ones. And long story shorter, uh, 840 generations, which took six months to uh, to run. That's what I, I call the miracle of this whole thing, that Windows NT didn't crash in six months. It was, was the biggest miracle. Um, we went out and we tested the program uh, against real people on MicrosoftZone.com. And after 165 games of testing by hand, we found that our program was ranked in the top 500 of 120,000 wow. people on Zone.com. Wow. That's crazy. And the funny, <laughs> the funny story of uh, Blondie Twenty Four also is that well, the first time we went out to play, it was November, and so I, I just made it. Uh, David Eleven O One was our name for me being David, and it was November first. And we got some games, and we were doing well. But you know, nobody really wants to play against David Eleven O One. It's a, you know, who cares? Yeah. So then the next summer came along as we were working on this. And the uh, Star Wars movies had started up again. So we changed our name to Obi-Wan the Jedi. Oh. And it, all of a sudden, a lot of people wanted to play us. And so it was great. We were getting a lot of games. But, you know, the, the better you get, the more chance you have of playing higher-ranked players, which we wanted to do to really test how we were at master level, expert level, whatever it was. So it turns out that the expert level and master level players are very gracious, whether they win or lose. But the ones that are a little lower, let's call class A, class B, I like to joke they really didn't have any class at all sometimes because they would you have a little chat box, right, and you're in the game, and then the, if they're losing, they start swearing at you, and they start taking a long time, like three minutes plus on every move. And you get to a point where you're, you're way up on checkers and you know you're going to win, but it's going to take over an hour to get there, and also they're going to be swearing at you like crazy for that hour. So I turned to Kumar and I said, who are these guys who are swearing at us? And we figured after a while, well, it's not women. You know, women aren't going to swear at you over checkers. And it's not older guys. Uh, as an older guy now, I can tell you, you know, I don't really <laughs> associate myself with, like, checkers rating. So it must be young guys. So we figured, hey, what would mollify a young guy better than a young girl? And so we changed her name to Blondie 24, and we made a whole story about her. She's uh. a 24-year-old math math major at UCSC, and she surfs, and she's skis, and she's good-looking, and she's looking for a boyfriend. And how'd she get so good at checkers? Well, she broke her leg skiing and had to lay up for six months. Because that was kind of true, right? The machine had taken six months to get there. And then we went back out as Blondie 24. It's really hilarious. But the same people who had just been swearing at me because I was taking very good notes about who was doing what. Yeah. The same people who had just been swearing at me are now asking me, you know, repeatedly, come play with me on table 36, Blondie. Like, you know, they couldn't be nicer to me. Oh. And so, we, you, you know, you get in there and you play a game with them and they start saying, well, where are you and what are you wearing? And I'm like, you know, you don't want to know what I'm wearing because okay. I'm, I'm here in my, you know, my yeah. shirt and pants. Anyway, but it was great. So we, we finished that and uh, wrote several technical papers and a, and a book about it and uh, finally did get some funding from National Science Foundation to work on chess as well. I got to meet Gary Kasparov as part of that process, oh, cool. and uh, in the end of that, we, we ended up getting some wins over Fritz 8, which was one of the top five chess programs in the world, and also uh, the first machine learning program in chess to defeat a human national-ranked uh, master. Wow. And so uh, it's been, it was quite, quite a lot of fun, a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be, even though I thought it was going to be a lot of fun, but uh, very interesting, and I uh, you know wouldn't have traded any of that. Interesting. And, and so... Uh... Of course, I have to ask, what do you think of uh, uh, um, DeepMind being, um, you know, winning, being the champion in Go? Like, is that a, a yeah. significant event, or 
what are your thoughts on that? I do think it's a significant event. I, I think there are more significant events to come, though, because there's still a lot of knowledge that goes into something like that with uh, opening books from grandmasters and positional value and things like that. So, And, of course, a huge computational uh, lift from GPUs. I yes. forget how many. They had 48 of them or something like that, right? So, um, yes, I think between me and colleagues that I spoke with in Vancouver at our IEEE computational intelligence meeting uh, just a little while ago, I think by and large most of us were surprised that that result came about as quickly as it did. But in terms of where we need to go in order to uh, make true scientific strides on autonomous machine learning without that information that's being given, I think we still have a long way to go. Hmm. And, uh, and how would that look like? Would that be more like you're training a machine from scratch with no prior knowledge? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Kind of how we did it with Blondie 24, exactly. where you just start with, with kind of primitives and you let it play against itself and whatever primitives win, you you know, you let them build up over time. The question is, how much time does that take? And I was asked a question at a public lecture that I gave in Vancouver, which was a good question. You know, when when you're trying to design something as a solution to a problem as an engineer, that's probably not the way you want to go, right? Because if we know things about a particular problem, we might know physics, we might know previous attempts at a solution, there might already be some form of a solution involved. Um, we'd want to start with that and then improve from there. We don't want to say, well, let's pretend we don't know anything and have the machine learn everything. So as an engineer, when I come to a problem, I want to try to learn everything there is about that problem and use my intuition and insight and hopefully the engineers who've already worked on it too have their own insight that we can leverage. But I think we, you know, there are those problems where we say we don't really know what to do or we haven't formulated it as a problem yet. Well, how can we use AI to leverage that and have machine learning help us figure out what to look at? And I think those are the kind of things that still have a lot of room for breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how, yeah, how do you, like, what type of research is needed in order to get those breakthroughs? Just continuing to uh, um, uh, create new algorithms and more training or you know, how would you go about that, improving that? Well, that that's, a, that's a great question, and I'm not sure that I have a great answer for it because it's kind of in the realm of what we don't know. But I think part of it's going to be how we think about representing solutions to problems, and maybe some representations are going to be more amenable to machine learning algorithms than others. I guess we already know that, but which ones are going to be more amenable to having general problem-solving capabilities? Uh, and I think that's really a wide open area. I think it's going to be also more of a synergy between advances in robotics and advances in computer hardware, along with advances in algorithms, hmm. because the interaction of a device in its environment is really important. And I think a lot of that gets missed uh, up to this point. It's uh, we you know, do something in simulation. Well, you know, the simulation may not be exactly the same as being out in the real world. Uh, Self-driving cars are around the corner. And that's fine. I, I still would like to see some videos of uh, a woman with a baby carriage stepping off in front of a car that's moving 30 miles an hour through an intersection with a green light. And let me see how that self-driving car handles that. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, hopefully it handles it well. But those are things that we that we need to see in actuality, not in simulation, right? None of us would trust it in simulation. So. No, that's true. And, and what type of projects are you uh, working on now? 
Well, we uh, we do a lot of different things at Natural Selection, including a lot of biotech stuff. But also, I'm working in financial computing. I have my spin-off company from Natural Selection Incorporated called Natural Selection Financial, which is a registered investment advisory company, and I been a hedge fund manager for two years previously using these sorts of algorithms for predicting stock market directional moves. And then the other thing we work on is a program called EffectCheck, uh, which is E-F-F-E-C-T-C-H-E-C-K, and people can find out more about it at EffectCheck.com, which is a sentiment analysis program and helps you figure out what emotional response may be likely from communication that you're working on. So for marketing, for legal, for press releases, or any other general communication if you want to try to have an effect in terms of emotions mm. on people, um, or maybe just to understand better how your own emotional uh, reaction is going to be reflected on someone else, uh, that can be a very useful tool. So between NSI, National Selection Financial, and Effect Check, that's the main things that I'm working on. Interesting. Yeah, you get involved with so many cool stuff um you know between the games and the financial industry and biotech and i mean i guess that's the beauty of you know kind of your you have this base knowledge you can applies to so many different fields that's interesting it is and it's also the beauty of the algorithmic space that i was fortunate enough to get into too because it's not um just not pigeonholed to any one application it really is as diverse as nature around us right and so whether you're designing a ship to go uh, beneath the surface and you want to model how a penguin uh, happens to be designed, which is a nice end product of evolution or a dolphin or something else. You know, nature, nature can give you engineering inspiration for many, many different things, whether it's flying, driving a car, swimming, sending radio signals, all sorts of stuff. And so there's really no limit to the, to the types of applications that uh, I've been exposed to or could be exposed to. Huh, interesting. And, uh, um, how was it uh, running a, a hedge fund? I, I mean, you don't have to tell us exactly how you did, but uh, you know, did that help you? I mean, once again, it's kind of like a game, right? And uh, it, it is, and, it is, and it still is. So <laughs> you know, there's two. You asked me that. That's a good question. So you know, we, we started Natural Selection Financial in 2006 and uh, trading the S and P 500. And I'm not really sure what advertising rules are around stuff like that. So I'm just going to speak in it with generality yeah. if anybody wants to follow up for specifics they can't but we did very well and we were bought out and then you know, as part of that buyout I became a hedge fund manager for about 60 million dollars but it was a very challenging time and not so much challenging for us but for challenging for the the world environment oh, yeah. because the, the buyout <laughs> happened in April of 08 we started trading institutional money in August of 08 then Lehman oh. Brothers went under in September so oh, there wasn't goodness. a lot of other people who were you know there weren't a lot of other companies or firms, family offices that were doing a lot of allocation at that time. And after two years, the seed funder had to withdraw the money. And so we had to close that down. So that's why I said I restarted Natural Selection Financial as an investment advisory firm. But I, I met a lot of interesting people. I got to fly all over the world and meet people from Hong Kong and Switzerland and England and you know all over the place and go through a very interesting time where our uh, methods are generally not correlated to the S&P 500. So it didn't really matter to us performance-wise, whether the market was going up or down. But it was, uh, you know, it was great timing on, on us getting acquired that way, but it was also, unfortunately, bad timing with the fiscal crisis that happened at the same time, and those things are out of our control. So we just have to make the, the best of it as we go, gotcha. you know, as we're solving problems, whatever, whatever the environment is. Sometimes there's tailwinds, sometimes there's headwinds. Gotcha. So with your financial advisory software, do you uh, help allocate, like, portfolios, or can people – hire you kind of as a third party to 
run some of their some of their funds or Great question. So I, I do both of those. I do help with portfolio construction. The main part of the evolutionary algorithms that we work on are day-to-day trading, though. So they're looking for patterns in the market, and those patterns change over time. And so the algorithms change over time by evolution to continue to search for those patterns and decide whether or not they have an idea that the market might be going up or going down or they can't tell for the next day. And then we take a position for the next day if we have the uh, algorithms telling us to. So it's all systematic. It's not discretionary. It's not a function of, you know, how I feel on a given day. It has nothing to do with it. It's just a matter of what the algorithms are telling us to do. Interesting. Okay. And I think we're just about out of time. Um, do you have time for a couple more quick questions, or if you don't, that's... sure, let's okay. let's do it. Okay, let's do it. All right. Well, I, I was curious about the you know you mentioned biotech. Um, very curious what type of projects you're working on. How you know, is it around um, drug discovery, or what are, what are you working on? Well, we have done a lot within drug discovery, and in fact, even one of the first projects that we did at National Selection Incorporated back in the 1990s was on protein ligand docking and computational methods, evolutionary methods for doing that with a company called Agron, which was later bought out by Warner Lambert, and that was bought out by Pfizer. So now it's software that's, I believe, still be used by Pfizer, even wow. though it's many, many, many years later now. But, uh, but my brother does a lot of things, including things about how HIV evolves uh, in different people to predict how it's going to change. We've also done things in looking at uh, RNA analysis and trying to find novel RNA that people might be able to target as uh, therapeutic sites. So it's a wide variety of things, and then also medical devices. So I mentioned the breast cancer research that we did, but I've also worked on things that are processes for helping people with ringing in their ears, also called tinnitus. So there's a a wide variety of different things that we've done on the biotech side, and I suspect that we've only done a symbol full of the kind of stuff that we really could do if we had more opportunity. Interesting. So with the, the ringing in the ears, what mm-hmm. yeah how yeah how were you brought in and how how did you help with that? Well, I, I was brought in. I was brought in because about twelve years ago, a virus decided to get into my right ear, and uh, I started getting really bad ringing in my in my right ear, and then it transferred over to bulb ears, which is an interesting process, and that's not where the virus went. But uh, I I went through the medical ready uh, for me the usual medical follow up that you would do, and that's just unfortunately not too much that medical science has to offer. Yeah. Bill, uh, for those people suffering. And then I learned that 50 million Americans have tinnitus out of 300 million with 5 to 10 million having at a level that's debilitating to their lives. And I started thinking, well, what can I do to help myself here? So I started looking up about tinnitus masks. You know, you can listen to white noise. Unfortunately, the, the brain likes to hear real sounds as opposed to sounds it's making up hallucinating, basically. So you can listen to white noise, but who wants to listen to white noise? You can basically well listen to ringing. So I started thinking about, can we change the white noise? Can we mutate it somehow? Can we make it adaptive to me that would be most effective to me? And over a process of about two months of engineering different waveforms, I was actually able to get something one day that I, I listened to it for about 30 seconds. I turned it off and the ringing went away. And then it gradually came back. Then it gradually came back. It wasn't like, okay, you're cured. No, it didn't work like that. But I listened to it again, and I would listen to it. And over time, I actually, it did go away. And I very, very rarely now get any ringing in my ears ever. I do sometimes when I'm very tired or if I'm fighting a cold or something. But typically, I would say I'm I'm pretty much tinnitus-free. 
So I took that and I said, what I really just did there was an interactive evolutionary algorithm. I was the objective function. I said whether it worked for me. And the process was done by hand. Now, why don't we make that automated? So we submitted a grant to NSF for that, and we got funded. And we built a system uh, that was uh, given a test on 16 things, 16 patients in clinical trials. Uh, we helped about half of them. And we've, uh, you know, still been looking for phase two funding on that, but we do have a patent on that that was issued in 2009, if I recall. So we're still looking for people to, to pick up on that and hopefully get it to be an approved FDA device that other people can benefit from. Interesting. My wife has that issue sometimes, so I was curious. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's not much you can do. A lot do. of people do. That's really interesting. Yeah, a lot of people okay. do. Okay. Yeah. All right, I know we're pretty much out of time, but last question, and, I, and maybe you don't have yeah. much free time because you sound like you're working on a lot of really interesting projects, but I was curious, I'm, you know, do you, if you have free time, do you know, do you work on any uh, kind of side projects? I guess this ear rending was maybe almost a side project for you at, at one point. Every, you know. Everything everything is a side project to some degree, I guess, yeah. but, you know, you don't want to <laughs> minimize, minimize the ones that are real projects. Yes. Um, so when I'm not, when I'm not uh, spending time with family, you know, then um, I would say for, for hobbies, I, I enjoy playing piano. I've played since I was five years old. And I for I, I was very lucky. Again, I got to play for, uh, professionally at a local hotel in San Diego for 16 years from 1994 to 2010, once a week or twice oh, a week. Oh, my goodness. Um, and then I'm also now getting into astrophotography. So it's uh, nice to go out to the mountains here in San Diego or to the desert just on the other side of the mountains. It's pretty dark skies and uh, finding out, you know, what it takes to take decent pictures of Andromeda Galaxy and things that are farther away. Oh, interesting. I would love that. All right. Well, I could talk to you for a, a long time, but we should probably cut it off, And uh, unfortunately. But this has been great. Uh, David, really appreciate you hearing about what you're working on and what you have worked on, and uh, definitely very inspiring. And uh, I can just, I, I like your energy. So it's uh Thank you. Well, it's been it's been fun, and if you want to do part two sometime, just let me know. Yeah, yes, I, I might take you up on that. Um, but yeah, you know, okay. appreciate it, and uh, thanks again, David, and uh, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Flyer Labs. As always, I appreciate it. Bye, everyone. <laughs>